It's the Kim Munson Show, analyzing the most important story. Socialization of transportation, education, energy, housing, and water. What it means is, is that government controls it through rules and regulations. The latest in politics and world affairs. Under this guise of bipartisanship and nonpartisanship, it's actually tapped down the truth. Today's current opinions and ideas. On an equal field in the battle of ideas, mistruths or misconceptions, and it is getting us into a world of hurt. Is it freedom or is it force? Let's have a conversation. Indeed, let's have a conversation and welcome to the Kim Munson Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You're each treasured, valued, you have purpose. Today, strive for excellence. Take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body. My friends, we were made for this moment. And thank you to the team I work with. That's producer Steve, producer Luke, Zach, Patty, Keith, Echo, Charlie, and all the people here at Crawford Broadcasting. Happy Monday, producer Steve. Monday, February 27th, which you know what that means. That March is right around the corner? Uh, Yeah. The Ides of March, right? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yet the uh, the flaky weather is 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 upon us yet too because they say another one's coming on Wednesday. Another you know, and of course it is because we took the time to wash both of our vehicles on Saturday. Oh, of course, then it's going to snow. So of blame course. blame it on me. Yeah, uh, absolutely, I will. Um, yeah, well, you know what? We need the moisture. I'm just going to put it that way. Although I have had a speaking engagement. Two Wednesdays ago, last Wednesday, and I've got another one this Wednesday out at Parker Conservatives. And uh, so I guess that's the other thing. You wash your car, and I have a speaking engagement. That means that it's going to snow. (laughs) All right. I'm glad we figured that out. Moving on. Moving on. uh, Check out our website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter there. And you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And uh, our our text line is 720-605-0647. That's 720-605-0647. And we've got a jam-packed show planned for you today. So I want to get to our quote for today because uh, Ben Martin is back. And I thank the Harris family for their... I'm going to be looking at Lincoln and how uh, things that were going on there, we're seeing some similarities right now in 2023 America. And so we'll learn from Lincoln's life. And uh, so that will be in this first uh, first hour. We'll also talk with Representative Ty Winter. The, uh, the legislation, the bills have dropped regarding making it more difficult for you to protect yourselves and your families with your firearms. Of course, all the while, they're not doing a darn thing about crime. We've got a, a pipeline from the, the border here to, to Denver. <clears throat> and uh, we know there's bad guys that are coming in. In over the border, and um, so they're not doing a darn thing about crime. Uh, in fact, uh, Denver was was ranked by one of the um, news outlets as number one in crime in the United States. So here down at the legislature, they are trying to figure out how to make it more difficult for you and me to protect our families. So we'll talk with Ty Winter about that. Ben Martin in the first hour is our featured guest. Second hour, we'll talk with Roger Mangan at uh, um, regarding some important stuff regarding insurance. And then I'm thrilled to have Randall O'Toole. He's an expert in urban planning, um, transportation. And I want to talk with him about all all these apartment buildings that are popping up all over the metro area. 
and also some property rights issues as well. Uh, so jam-packed show planned for you. But since we're going to be talking about Lincoln, <clears throat> I thought it was appropriate that we go to him for our quote of the day. And Abraham Lincoln, uh, his by names were Honest Abe, the rail splitter, or the great emancipator. He was born in 1809. He died in 1865. He was president of the United States, 1861 to 65. He preserved the Union during the American Civil War and brought about the emancipation of the slaves in the United States. So he says this. He said, nations do not die from invasion. They die from internal rottenness. How could he see that? I guess how he could see that, Steve, is... I was going to ask you that question. How could he see that? Well, he was probably looking at this question of could one man actually be the property of another. And that's pretty rotten if, if the idea of the country is that all men are created equal. And the founders knew that. Uh, this, uh, As Jefferson said, this slavery has been foisted upon us. Slavery was rampant throughout the world at the time of our founding. And uh, you can see that they, the founders really wrestled with this. And they were putting in, uh, well, in the Constitution, they outlawed, outlawed slavery within, I think, 20 years. And so, <clears throat> but I think that he, he probably looked at this, Lincoln, and realized that it's pretty rotten. Of course, we, we have a new kind of slavery, though, now here in America. I mean, the homelessness industrial complex. When I go by these corners and I, I, I'm like, how did these people find transportation to get to this corner? How, how did this happen? And uh, there's people, the homelessness industrial complex is making big, big money on the misery of, of the homeless in, in our metro area. And if they were really serious about solving the problem, then they, the problem would be solved. But they're not because then the gravy train of all the money that they're breaking in regarding the homelessness uh, would go away. And I, I look at that, and I think that's a pretty rotten thing that's going on here, uh, Producer Steve. Well, okay, uh, blank industrial complex. To, uh, Eisenhower first coined the phrase military industrial complex, but now we have, and what was it? It was maybe a reference to some unintended consequence, like look out, Everything that we've done to be successful in pushing back tyranny in World War II is going to have an unintended consequence. Right. And, and so he looked at that. And, and you have wisely now coined the phrase homelessness industrial com- uh, mm-hmm. complex. So, yeah. It is. And, uh, and then, gosh, the culture. Uh, we've got a lot of internal rottenness going on. However, I was talking with someone yesterday, and, and they're seeing a real revival of, 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 of people turning back to Christ and God. And uh, so we're, we've got this real, this real battle right now of good versus evil. And evil is rampant uh, right now. And uh, so we must not give up and we must uh, focus on, you know, focus on uh, the job at hand. And my friends, when I say that we are made for this moment, I am serious about it. We are made for this moment. Uh, check out my website. We um, rolled out three important essays yesterday. The first was Ideas by Brad Beck. The second was California and Federalist Number 2 by Alan Thomas. And I spent hours on one for you regarding the Republican-sponsored Senate Bill 23101, Silences Coloradans' Voices. And I spent hours going through the uh, Federal Elections Commission, uh, the FEC, um, 
finance, campaign finance stuff, as well as Colorado Tracer. And I connected some dots and I named some names uh, of um, of um, big consultants that have been milking donors. They've been padding their pockets and they have been losing elections. And um, in one of the uh, elections, uh, this uh, particular uh, entity raked in $4.4 million, but still lost the election. And so that's, um, if you want to see the names named there and the solution, take a look at uh, the website and just click on the, oh, and, and, uh, Zach outdid himself on the, on the image there as well. So be sure and check that out at kimmunson.com. I, uh, as, I need to do that because I, you hit a grand slam last week. I didn't think you could top that. So I need to run off and read that quickly. Yeah, let me know what you think of that. Um, My friends, crime is rampant in Colorado. We are number one in, number one or two in car thefts, number one in bank robberies, number one in crime. And down at the legislature, these radical activists that have taken over the Democrat Party, instead of addressing the challenges that everyday Coloradans are facing, they are going to try to make it more difficult for you and me, everyday regular people, to protect ourselves against um, the bad guy. And I wanted to talk with Ty Winter. And uh, these bills just recently dropped, and so we're going to talk with Ty today. It's very quick, uh, but we'll be talking with other legislators as well. But I'm just so thrilled that Ty Winter is uh, with us. So, Ty, welcome to the show. Good morning, Kim. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the work that you're doing down there. And uh, Ty, you are, I had it, uh, let's see, you are House District 47. But let's jump right in here because uh, a number of these uh, bills dropped that will make it more difficult for everyday people to protect themselves. So what's your what's your thoughts about this? First of all, Kim, they're unconstitutional. I mean, we see a direct attack on our God-given unalienable rights at the state capitol. Um, really don't understand why they're doing this. We have gun laws in place. Uh, most of the, the shootings that they reference, uh, the guns were purchased legally. This is a mental health thing. Um, this is a we don't have a God in our country anymore. Um, we're not afraid of a higher power. I think it's there's some cultural things that we're facing. Um, and they try to blame it on the guns. So it's just unfortunate to see because, Kim, a lot of times in the chamber, whenever the Democrats are making a, an argument down at the well, they reference the Constitution, but they only reference it when it benefits them. And they'll never reference the Second Amendment in a good light. So the bills are unconstitutional. And uh, us as a caucus are going to dig in our heels and fight. And we need you know you to get the word out and the constituents to get the word out. Flood the Capitol, come and testify, get on, get on Zoom, testify from Zoom. We need, we need all the help we get. We need them to hear from the voices of the, the good, honest, safe gun owners in the state of Colorado. Well, and Ty, what this is really doing is uh, making it more difficult for everyday people to protect themselves and their families against the bad, against the bad guys. And uh, so the the ones that uh, Patty put on the outline was Senate Bill twenty three one sixty eight, and this is uh, it says gun violence victims access to ju- the judicial system. But it looks like uh, that um, manufacturers of firearms and ammunition could be sued. And that they're not the ones that <laughs> that uh, pull the trigger. It's the bad guys. So we need to focus on the bad guys. And then Senate Bill twenty three one sixty nine, increasing minimum age to purchase firearms. Senate Bill twenty three one seventy, extreme risk protection order petitions, and House Bill twenty three twelve nineteen, waiting period to deliver a firearm. So you're going to have to wait to protect yourselves against um, 
the bad guys as well. So what's your what's your comments? Are there more or are those the four main ones right now? Um, right now, those are the four main ones. There's rumors that there's more coming. I mean, you know, I agree with you. The first bill, if you look at trying to push the liability, that's the end game for them. They figure if they can get the gun manufacturers and the ammunition manufacturers to bow out of the game because their fear of being held liable if somebody that isn't even related to them commits a crime. So I think that's what we see with that one. When it comes to the expanding of the red flag, what we, we talked, what I said earlier, red flag wouldn't have worked on many cases that we've seen in shootings recently. And then raising the age limit, to me, that's pure insanity. You take there's an 18-year-old mother who has an abusive husband or boyfriend, and now she can't purchase a firearm to protect herself. Um, you know, so they're trying to take the great equalizer away from people, and I think it's wrong. I think it puts people at risk, and I think that an armed society is a safe society. I think there's a lot of different things around this, Kim, but no matter how it shakes out, we have to dig in our heels, and we have to fight for the constitutional right to own and protect yourself with arms. And I think a, a lot of it's lost in, Kim, is they, they forget where the founders put the Constitution, why they put the Second Amendment in the Constitution. And that was to keep the check and balance between government and the citizenry. And I think that can never get lost in our messaging, um, because that's the original intent of the Constitution, um, was for that. Also to protect this country from enemies, foreign and domestic, and to protect your family. But we have to hone in on why the reason that the founders put the Second Amendment um, you know, as one of our rights. Well, absolutely. Ty Winter, uh, how can people reach you? And are, have these been scheduled for hearings yet? Uh, yes. Yeah, so a lot of them have been ran across the de- ran across the desk. So all you do is, is you hop on the state website, you look to see what day those bills are uh, going to be in committee. At that point, you're able to either sign up to come be in person or you're able to sign up and uh, testify via Zoom. You know, I think because I think it's been daunting sometimes when people come down to the state house, and I really recommend that people do this because our constitution is on the line here. But it's it's nice to have that option uh, if you can't get down there to testify via Zoom, or also people can submit written testimony. So, Ty Winter, keep us in the loop on what's happening here. Thank you. I have to ask you one other question, and you, so this is your first uh, your first session, and. How is it? I, I'm, I'm like, these legislators aren't writing these bills. Do you have any idea where these bills are coming from? Um, so I would believe that these bills are probably coming from their special interest lobby. Um, you know, I would say that has something to do with it. I wouldn't, you know, when we ran our gun bill at the state capitol, which was the expansion of rights to the business, you know, moms demand action were there. They brought a ton of the kids in from Denver East, and one after another got up. So I would say a lot of these bills are coming from special interest groups. I wouldn't be surprised if some of these ideas aren't coming in from out of state. Um, I know the assault weapons ban that they're talking about look a lot like Feinstein's ban a couple years ago. So, I mean, I think it's the anti-gun lobby across the nation probably mm-hmm. picks and pokes and you know drops bills into certain states as they see fit, and that would be my guess. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that you're probably right. So thank you for being down there holding the line. And we as the citizens need to come in and help you as well. So Ty Winter, thank you so much. He is a Colorado representative from House District 47. Thanks, Kim. And thank you for what you do. If it wasn't for your voice, getting getting these stories out and putting the word out, the fight would be a lot tougher. Thank you for what you do. 
Well, we'll keep at it with you. So thank you, Ty Winter. And we get to do this because of these great sponsors that I have. And as a State Farm agent for 47 years, Roger Mangan has uh, served his customers and provided for his family and given back to the communities of Centennial, Littleton, Highlands Ranch, Inglewood, Greenwood Village, as well as Castle Rock. For help with your insurance needs, call Roger Mangan at 303-795-8855. That's 303-795-8855. Like a good neighbor, Roger Mangan Insurance is there. I can't believe I just scratched that car. Find my insurance card. Dude, what do you have in this glove box? Ew, are these socks dirty? Oh, forget about the socks. I need my insurance card. Just pull it up on the State Farm mobile app. But I can do that? Oh, hey, I can do that. Yep, it's called service. I can file a claim on here, too? Yeah, it's it's called service. Whoa, I can call my agent, too? It's called service. Award-winning realtor Karen Levine has nearly 30 years of experience with REMAX Alliance. As a director with the National Association of Realtors, Karen Levine works to protect private property rights. Karen Levine believes in homeownership. Because of Karen's love of dogs, Karen volunteers regularly with GRRR, Golden Retriever Rescue of the Rockies, helping Golden Retrievers find their forever homes. Call Karen Levine to help you buy or sell your home because she understands that it's more than just a house. Call award-winning realtor Karen Levine with REMAX Alliance today at 303-877-7516. That's 303-877-7516. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. I'm Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter there. You can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And the show comes to you because of a lot of great sponsors. Another great sponsor that's been with us uh, for both the, the shows and for a long time is Hooters Restaurants. They have five locations. That's Loveland, Aurora, Westminster, Lone Tree, and Colorado Springs. And uh, they're sponsors because it's a very important story about freedom and free markets and capitalism. Great place to get together with friends for lunch Monday through Friday because they have great lunch specials or Monday through Friday happy hour specials as well. So again, you can find that great story at my website. That is KimMunson.com. And thank you to the Harris family for sponsoring this show. These uh, these shows with Ben Martin are just rich. And uh, Lincoln's birthday was um, in fe- is, is in February. I think it's February 12th. We'll ask Ben Martin about that. Ben Martin, welcome to the show. Well, hello, Steve and Kim. How good to talk with you today. Oh, it's great to have you. Well, great to have you. So, um, Lincoln, this is going to be Life and Sword is what this uh, series will be this year. I'm thrilled about this, uh, Ben Martin. I am, too. I'm looking forward to it, Kim. You know, he's one of our great presidents and, and one of the great Americans, and I like to call him the father of the second founding. So uh, today we, we begin our fifth year, Kim, of programs aimed at providing oh your listeners, yeah, our, our neighbors and friends, families, and with truer pictures of our rich and singular American history. In last year's program, we hopefully brought into sharper focus the lives, sacrifices, and achievements of some of our key founding fathers. These were our first founding fathers, Kim. In this year's program, we look closely at another founding father, one that is not in that first generation of founders, but also who came to the force at a critical point in our country's history. 
and guided us through what he so famously called at its outset, the crisis of the House Divided. Of course, we are speaking of Abraham Lincoln, like we talked before. I respectfully call him the father of our second founding. He, like the father of our first founding, George Washington, kept our nation together in the most trying of crises. Both, in their own time, defeated the nefarious forces of that age-old and successful strategy of divide and conquer. Our founders warned of it and devised methods against this, these forces in our constitutional convention in Philadelphia, in the states ratifying conventions, and in the writings of the Federalist Papers, and finally in Washington's farewell address. At that time, they called these nefarious forces factions. Factions were described in Federalist Paper Number 9 this way. By a faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interest of the community. Factions. In Washington's time, these divisive factions were called the Loyalists or Redcoats. In Lincoln's time, they were called Confederates, Rebels, Slave States, Slave Owners, or Democrats. Today, in our time, we also have these diverse factions trying to tear apart our country. They are the supporters and perpetuators of illogical and baseless ideologies like CRT, DEI, open borders, gender fluidity, and many more. We have often in these past four years of programming studied the ways Washington and his fellow founders defeated the divisive factions in their times. Perhaps we can now, this year, study Lincoln's biography and use of writings and speeches to defeat the divisive factions of his time and thereby help us to reunite our fellow American countrymen into the pure visions of our original founders and the similar vision of Lincoln, the father of our second founding. So hopefully your audience will join us and stay with us this year as we study Lincoln's life and his sword. You know, this is absolutely fascinating. And... Um and I really think that we are in the third founding of our country right now. We'll be talking with General Joe Arbuckle here this week. Um, and last time I had him on, he said that he feels that this is our 1775 moment. Uh, so I really think that we are at um, a dangerous, tumultuous time. But I think as we look back at history, we can go to Lincoln and we can use some of the tools that we're going to learn through this series this year. Uh, regarding uh, addressing these challenges that we have today, Ben? Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%, Kim. I, I think it's really important for us to realize that this is a really dangerous time for us, and, and we can draw so many parallels to what happened in our first founding and, and even more parallels to what happened in Lincoln's early life. And we'll point those out as we go through, especially this, this program this morning. So if we can, let's go on to Lincoln's early life, let's his life in, in Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois. Okay. Does that sound good with you? Sounds like a great plan. Okay. Well, let us begin by looking at the Lincoln's family early history. The first Lincoln's 
that arrived in America, specifically Massachusetts, was in 1635, and his name was Thomas Lincoln. Thomas was married twice, but had they had no children. In 1637, two years later, Samuel Lincoln, Thomas's younger brother, an apprenticed weaver, came to Massachusetts from Lincolnshire, England. Samuel married Martha Lyford, and to make up for Thomas's family, they had 11 children. Wow. 11 died in infancy, but three lived into their 80s. And, and that's... Uh, now, now, how many... I'm sorry, how many children thing. did they have? They had 11. 14. They had 11 and eight died and three ma- three no, survived. Three died right? in infancy, but three lived into their 80s. Oh, got it. Okay. Which is pretty it. amazing for that time. Yeah. Lifespans were a lot shorter than they are today. Samuel was the progenitor of many notable American Lincolns, including Enoch Lincoln, who was the governor of Maine, and Levi Lincoln Sr. and Levi Lincoln Jr., both of whom were Massachusetts representatives, Massachusetts lieutenant governors, and Massachusetts governors. His fourth grandson was Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States. Samuel's fourth uh, fourth son was named Mordecai Lincoln. He was a blacksmith, and he was the ancestor of Abraham Lincoln. In 1644, Samuel set himself up in Hingham, Massachusetts, as a farmer. Thereafter, these Lincolns seemed to be relentlessly in search for more and more land. By the 1730s, Samuel's grandsons, Mordecai and Abraham, owned hundreds of acres in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Another generation brought descendants of Samuel Lincoln to the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And finally, in 1782, yet another Abraham Lincoln crossed over the Appalachians and staked out 1,200 acres of prime forest land in Kentucky. It was there the rise of Lincolns came to an abrupt halt. In 1784, while clearing land, that Abraham Lincoln was ambushed and killed by a party of maraudering Indians. The Indians then snatched up Abraham's eight-year-old son named Thomas. But before he could get away, before they could get away, Thomas's 14-year-old brother, Mordecai, picked up his father's rifle and shot the Indian. The death of Abraham was disastrous for the Lincoln family. Kentucky was still a province of Virginia at that time and governed by their inheritance laws of Virginia. And the bulk of the property, after sales and taxes, went to Mordecai with nothing going to Thomas. In 1792, at 16, Thomas was an apprentice cabinet maker. Later, he purchased a small plot of land north of Elizabethtown, Kentucky. In 1807, he married Nancy Hanks. And in February of that year, really short time, their first child, Sarah, was born. In 1809, Thomas moved his family to a a 300-acre farm on Nolan Creek near Hodgenville, Kentucky, to take up farming in the state where his father had formed 20 years before him. 
There, on 12 February 1809, Abraham Lincoln, the one that we know, was born. Another name for that site is Stinkin' Springs. <laughs> they lived until eight, they lived there until 1811. The, there is a national park. It's it's really nice national state park there for the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln. It is about 60 miles south of the town of Louisville. In 1811, then, Thomas moved the family to Knob Creek in Kentucky, where he bought a 230-acre farm. Thomas and Nancy's third child, also named Thomas, was born there, but died soon after. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln wrote that this was his earliest recollection and it was of this place. They remained there until 1816, when Abraham was seven years old. In 1816 through 1818, we talk about next, in 1816, the family moved to Hurricane Township in Perry County, Indiana. Indiana was a free, non-slaveholding territory. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln noted the family's move to Indiana was partly on account of slavery. The farm is preserved as part of the Lincoln Boyhood National Memorial, and it's now in a town called Lincoln City, Indiana. Then from 1818 to 1830, they were still in Pigeon Creek, but I mean, still in Indiana, but they moved the family to Little Pigeon Creek, now the Lincoln City, Indiana, we talked about. On 5 October 1818, unfortunately, Nancy Lincoln, Abraham's mother, died of milk sickness. Now, milk sickness is uh, you get from drinking the milk from cows who have been eating snake root plants, and the death is, is a really terrible death. This left the 11-year-old Sarah, Lincoln's older sister, in charge of the household that included her father, 9-year-old Abraham, Dennis Hanks, Nancy's 19-year-old orphan cousin, and on 2 December 1819, Lincoln's father left the family, went off and married a lady named Sarah, who was called Sally, Bush Johnston, a widow from Elizabethtown, Kentucky, who also had three children of her own. Abraham became very close to his new stepmom. On 20 January 1828, Abraham's sister Sarah died while giving birth to a stillborn child. Mm. Those who knew Abraham as a teenager later recalled him being very distraught over his sister's death. My gosh, they were they had to be so close, uh, Ben Martin. And the fact that that his father would leave them uh, on in December and, uh, you know, uh, the winter like that is it's just kind of beyond belief. But uh, I tell you what, Ben Martin, I'm talking with Ben Martin. Thank you to the Harris family for their sponsorship of this show about Lincoln's early life. This series that we're doing is Lincoln Life and Sword. And uh, we get to do this because we have so many great sponsors. Lauren Levy is an expert in the mortgage arena and has been a sponsor of both the Kim Munson Show and America's Veterans Stories for years. Inflation is rocking our boats, especially for individuals on fixed incomes. If you are 62 years or older, mortgage specialist with Polygon Financial Group, Lauren Levy, can help you navigate this inflation squeeze with a reverse mortgage. 
Additionally, if you are considering buying a new home, refinancing your existing home, or consolidating high interest debt, it's not too late to lock in an interest rate before interest rates increase again. Don't wait. Kim Munson recommends you call Lauren Levy today at 303-880-8881 for a no-cost consultation. That's Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. Three Points Financial, a comprehensive fee-only financial and tax-focused company, considers all the pieces of a client's financial life. There are no sales or commissions involved, and all advice is fiduciary, putting the client first. Mary Alpers and Steve Cruz, co-owners of Three Points Financial, take time to work with you regarding decisions that affect your financial present and future. Whatever is happening in our world and with our economy, you have financial goals that matter. And Three Points Financial offers personal, real-time plans for savings, retirement, investments, and taxes, both tax efficiency and preparation. There is no better time than now to focus on your financial situation. If you are interested in learning more, contact threepointsfinancial.com to schedule a no-obligation introductory call. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Munson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, kimmunson.com. That's Kim, M-O-N-S-O-N, dot com. And welcome back to The Kim Munson Show. I'm Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N, dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter there. And you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice as we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. Uh, check out the three essays that we have um, we published this weekend in the newsletter. They're on the website now. And uh, the one that I uh, have uh, written uh, is very hard-hitting and would highly recommend that you check that out. Um, because I did hours and hours of research on that, so be sure and check that out. Sh- uh, one of, I wanted to mention the USMC Memorial Foundation before we get back to Ben Martin. Uh, it is a nonprofit that I dearly love, uh, and it is so important that we honor those that have been willing to give their lives or have given their lives uh, for our freedom to know their stories. And a, a great way to help out is to contribute at uh, USMCMemorialFoundation.org. Uh, you can actually buy a brick to honor your loved one's service or your own service. Uh, Mother's Day, Father's Day is coming up, so that's a great gift. And you can do all that at USMCMemorialFoundation.org. Thrilled to have on the line with me Ben Martin. He is a patriotic historian. Uh, graduate of West Point, former Army Ranger, and we're talking about Lincoln, life and sword, his early life. Ben Martin, you mentioned that Sarah, uh, Lincoln's sister, died in childbirth, a stillborn baby, and that he was distraught about that. But uh, also, I find this intriguing about his father, Thomas. Lincoln was not close to his father, correct? Not, not close. We'll talk about that some more in a minute. But the, the, you know, you, the, it seems uh, this seems kind of abrupt or wh- whatever the way he would do this. But you know, I think this was something that was wasn't too uncommon in those times. Like like the person that he went out to marry, Sally, uh, was a she was a widow, and she had three children, and he was a widow, and at the time uh, he had two children, and. It, 
they just got you know we got together sort of like a sort of like a marriage of convenience and said hey let's let's live together and do this he he was looking uh for a wife and and someone to to uh, to run the household and i i think that was wasn't like i said wasn't too uncommon then okay. and they were in indiana where they they spent the largest part of lincoln's uh lincoln's childhood okay and so, there were, even though he left, uh, initially I thought the kids were by themselves, but there they weren't. There, there were others around. There were relatives that helped them, correct? Well, there weren't really any relatives ar- around there, <laughs> except for oh. uh, except for Sarah's uh, 19-year-old orphan cousin. So, um, but they, oh. he came back. But I mean, it was the thing. I mean, he went out to find a wife, and he came back with a wife. You know that's what he needed, and and apparently uh, she needed a husband too. So it worked out for both of them. Okay. And during this time in Indiana, this was where they spent, the, like I said, the largest part of his childhood. Lincoln's characteristics developed, and by the age of fifteen, in eighteen twenty-four, the thing he most loved to do was to talk and talk in public. That is what most of his boyhood friends remembered about him. He certainly loved talking more than form work or any physical work. They observed he was always reading, studying, and thinking. Physically, his friends remembered him at the young age as long, tall, dangling, awkward, raw-boned, raw-boned, with an odd and gawky way about him. In an age where the average man's height was 5'8", Lincoln reached 6'4 by the time he was 20 in 1819. However, his somewhat awkward physical features, this is according to his friends, seemed to disappear when he began to talk. He excelled any boy, this is a quote, putting his thoughts and opportunities into conversation. He would often talk about what he had recently read. The things he most read were the Bible, Shakespeare, Robert Burns, and Lord Byron. While working in the fields, he could jump up on a stump and quote poetry or recite, almost verbatim, sermons or political speeches he had recently heard. He was always sharp and lively and full of fun. He liked to hear and tell jokes or stories. He would talk at adult strangers passed by the roads along his family's farmland. Abraham's talents irritated and embarrassed his father, Thomas, who had little education or regard for it. He disparaged Abraham Lincoln's preference of reading, studying, and, 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 and uh, thinking over form work, and sometimes beat him for it. Abraham also disliked Thomas's strong and strict religious practices or his lackadaisical approach to farming chores. Abraham loved his stepmother, Sally, and received support and affection from her while receiving very little of that from his father. In early March of 1830, fearing a milk sickness outbreak, the Lincoln family moved west to Illinois, near the town of Decatur, Illinois. Was an, there was another, Illinois was, another free, non-slaveholding state. And in 1831, as the family prepared to move to Coles County, Illinois, 
Abraham Lincoln was old enough to make his own decisions. He had reached 21 and struck out on his own. Traveling down the Sangamon River, he ended up in the village of New Salem. Now, New Salem is about, to give everybody, it's uh, some bearing. It's about 20 miles northwest of Springfield, Illinois, the capital. In 1830 through 18. 37, Lincoln lived in the small frontier village of New Salem, Illinois, approximately 20 miles, like I said, northwest of Springfield. There is a museum now. There is a museum there now, as well as the statues of Abraham Lincoln. And the village has been reconstructed as it was during Lincoln's time there. The village is full of docents who can give a good account of many aspects of the life and daily happenings during Lincoln's time. I've been there uh, s- several times, and it's, it's, an, it's an amazing thing to see, an amazing place to visit. The museum is there. The statues out are, are really uh, fantastic. They show Lincoln in the things that he did while he was there, uh, cutting, cutting logs, uh, surveying. He was a surveyor. That was one. That was one of his first jobs, just like George Washington was. And Lincoln there met an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur named Denton Offutt, who hired him to take a raft loaded with goods down the Sangamon River to the Illinois River, then down to the Mississippi, down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. Lincoln had a good look at slavery on this trip. But Offutt was so impressed with Lincoln's ability in handling that trip, he hired him to run his store in New Salem. Offutt was so confident of Lincoln's ability to do almost anything he asked that he bragged to a group of local hooligans in New Salem that Lincoln called out the wrestler, their local leader, Jack Armstrong. Lincoln surprised Armstrong by wrestling, wrestling him to a draw. This earned Lincoln the respect and friendship of Armstrong and the local rowdies. And when an Indian uprising in northern Illinois called the Black Hawk War forced the governor of Illinois to call out the state militia, Armstrong and his friends elected Lincoln the captain of the New Salem Militia Company. Although the Black Hawk War did not last long, nor did Lincoln's militia company see any action, Lincoln said it remains his and this is really this is really amazing. It Lincoln said it remains his first and most memorable election. In eighteen thirty two, Lincoln announced himself as a candidate for the Illinois State Legislature. He was pretty confident after that election as a as the captain. And he was he ran as a legislature a state legislature from Sangamon County. However, because of his commitment to the Black Hawk War, he did not return to Sangamon County until a few weeks before the election. He lost that election, but was encouraged by winning 275 of the 278 votes in his town of New Salem. In 1834, he would run again, and this time have the ability to run a complete campaign. He won receiving the second highest vote count in the entire state legislature. And during the campaign, he made many campaign speeches. Listeners described, this is another interesting thing, Lincoln descri- listeners described Lincoln's voice as a shrill, monotone style. However, 
they noted that his voice enabled him and his, enabled his audience, no matter how large it was, to distinctly hear the lowest sound of his voice, and his voice never flagged throughout his speeches. Though initially seeming, seemingly a defect, in a time there was no, when there was no electronic amplification, his voice proved to be a very strong attribute. That is absolutely fascinating, Ben Martin. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, you know, and we forget about that there was no amplification. And uh, uh, I didn't know, it, you know, I took one of your classes on yeah. our founders. I guess we never really did Lincoln. But uh, it's this is so fascinating to really think about him as the young man. And uh, we get to do this because we have so many great sponsors. Roots Medical is another one of those fabulous sponsors of the Kim Munson Show. And, of course, Matt Dark with Roots Medical has his own show on KLZ Monday through Thursday, 9 to 10 a.m. You will want to check that out. But Roots Medical is another great partner of the show. Every family needs a healthcare team that has your child's best interest as the priority, and Roots Medical is proud to offer exactly that. At Roots Medical, we strive to empower and educate both parent and child about the importance of gut health, how to implement healthy changes in the home, and of course, all of the benefits that come with a fully optimized immune system. Same day and sickness appointments are available and easy to schedule. For more information, visit rootsmedical.net. That's R-O-O-T-S medical.net. Roots Medical, getting to the root of your healthcare concerns. What do Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, and Nikola Tesla have in common? None of these men graduated from college, but each of them had enormous intellectual curiosity. Scientist Dr. James Lyons Weiler is creating a new kind of educational model for the busy, intellectually curious. IPAC EDU. Classes are affordable and interactive and experts in each of their fields with courses in biology, philosophy, analytics, health and wellness, political science, chemistry, regenerative science, and psychology. There is a spring 2023 course for you. Dash over to IPACEDU.org. IPAC-EDU.org for more information and to register. That's IPAC-EDU.org. Finding a firearm or training course can be intimidating for anyone, especially when you're new at it. Franktown has everything you need to get started or to improve with a firearm. Franktown is a family-friendly gun store and are invested in the success of their customers, no matter what your age, gender, or experience level is. Franktown sells firearms and ammo at or below MSRP, has an indoor range on site, and offers tactical and safety training. Franktown Firearms is always a safe and easygoing environment environment for all customers. Come to Franktown for a comfortable, no-pressure experience when shopping or learning about your firearm with approachable experts dedicated to your development as the owner of a firearm. Franktown Firearms has everything you need to get started and or to improve on any background experience. Visit klzradio.com slash franktown to schedule your firearms training today or find more information at franktownfirearms.com. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. 
And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter there. And you can email me at Kim at Kim Munson.com as well. Our text line, 720-605-0647. We have uh, messages coming in. We'll uh, work to get through those in the last segment of the second hour. Our featured guest today is Ben Martin. He is a former Army Ranger. He's a patriotic historian, West Point grad, and thank you to the Harris family for their support of the show and for the support of this particular show. We're talking about Lincoln, life and sword, his early life. Fascinating, Ben. This is, I can't believe, I, I said to I said to um, Steve during the break, uh, boy, this is going fast. He goes, yes. He goes, you were going to break, and um, I'm like, it can't be time, and he looked at the clock, and it is. So let's, let's get right into it. Uh, this is our last segment, Ben. Okay, well, let's talk about the next thing we'll talk about is what we call his sword, his rhetoric and persuasion. That's that was his sword. So let us introduce uh, noted Lincoln author Douglas L. Uh, Lincoln uh, Wilson, who called Lincoln in his Lincoln Sword book, which won the Lincoln Nash the Pro, Nash, uh, Lincoln Prize from Gettysburg for that, that year, titled Lincoln Sword: The Presidency. And the power of words. Now, Lincoln, mm-hmm. uh, Doug, I mean Douglas Wilson, starts his book with the quote: "In the four years that Abraham Lincoln would be president, the American public would gradually discover, much to its collective astonishment, that this unprejudiced Illinois politician had remarkable abilities as a writer." knowing full well that all important speeches must be written before they can be spoken to the public. John G. Nicolay, Lincoln's private, one of Lincoln's private secretaries, one of the two, and biographer, wrote, perhaps no point in the career of Abraham Lincoln has excited more surprise or comment than his remarkable power of literary expression. It is a constant puzzle to many men of letters how a person growing up without the advantage of schools and books could have acquired the art which enabled him to write the Gettysburg Address and, and the Second Inaugural. To quote Douglas one more time in an effort to give clarity to the nature of Lincoln's sword, I'll, he says this, to approach Lincoln's presidency from the aspect of his writing is to come to grips with the degree to which his pen to alter his pen and to alter this this well-known proverb became his sword, arguably his most powerful presidential weapon. The proverb he's thinking about is the pen is, is is mightier than the sword. For any given presidential document, especially as an important one, there are great many aspects worthy of attention, such as historical context, its content, its rhetorical strategy, its style, its intended, and its actual effect. To appreciate Lincoln's rhetoric, we must appropriately understand rhetoric. And Aristotle, who wrote the first book on rhetoric, defines it like this. Rhetoric is the study of the available means of persuasion in any given case. And so what rhetoric is, is not bombastic or empty expression, and it is not used to conceal real uh, real thoughts and reality. So that that's basically talks about the way he could write and then speak. 
and persuade people. That was Lincoln's, that's what we call Lincoln's sword. And we'll talk about that throughout this way as we talk about notable speeches. And a notable early speech, Kim, is the Lyceum speech in Springfield in 1838. And there, Abraham Lincoln's Lyceum speech was delivered to the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois, on that day, 27 January 1838, titled The Perpetuation of Our Political Institutions. In his speech, Lincoln warned that mobs of people who disrespected U.S. laws and courts could destroy the United States. He went on to say, the Constitution and rule of law in the United States are the political religion of our nation. First, ask yourself, what is context? What is happening in the nation to, could, to construct the circumstances under which he spoke? But because of the opinions of the pro-slavery faction in the nation, the laws of the Constitution, the principles of our founding, are, are being ignored and violated. They are violent mobs in the streets, brutally murdering or hurting abolitionists and slaves, burning and lynching. The topic of the speech was citizens in a constitutional republic and threats to the United States institutions. In his speech, Lincoln discussed in glowing terms the political systems established by the founders, but warned of a destructive force within. He asked his audience, how then shall we reform it? At what point shall we expect the approach of danger? By what means shall we fortify against it? And I just, this is a little note. This is a forerunner to a later Lincoln uh, writing called The Fragments of Constitution and Union, which we'll talk about in a, in a future lecture. I can't or wait. Future interview. Oh my gosh. So shall we expect some transatlantic, this is a quote from the speech, shall we expect, and you've heard it before, some transatlantic giant to step the ocean and crush us with a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined with the treasures of the earth, our own accepted. In their military chest with a Bonaparte for a commander could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge. In a trial of a thousand years, at what point then is the approach of danger, this is a, at what point is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer if ever it reaches, it must spring up among us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. And in, Lincoln indirectly blamed slavery for lawlessness in the United States. In this context, he warned us that whenever the vicious portion of our population shall be permitted to gather in bands of hundreds and thousands and burn churches, ravage and rob provision stores, throw printing presses into the river, shoot editors, and hang and burn obnoxious persons at pleasure and with impunity depend upon it, this government cannot last. By such things, the feelings of the best citizens will become more or less alienated from it, and thus it will be left without friends, or with too few friends, and with those few friends too weak to make their friendship effectual. Wow. And, and, and Kim, does this wow. not sound similar to today's um, Oh my gosh, I, I'm thinking about where we are right now. Gosh, and that was this, that was the Lyceum speech? That was his Lyceum speech, and he was just oh. a young man. It was oh in 1838. Gosh. 
He was 29 years old then. Oh, and really? then he warned that a tyrant can take, could overtake the United States political system from within. To prevent this, prevent this, Lincoln concluded that there was a need to cultivate a political religion, religion that emphasizes reverence for the laws and puts reliance on reason, cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason. In terms of political link, of religion, Lincoln is asking all American citizens to go back and study the Constitution and the principles upon which it was based, those found in our Declaration. He is asking us to frequently read and understand these documents and our heritage, to then act in the virtuous nature that they describe. Oh, my gosh. We all have homework. Ben Martin, we are out of time, but we all have homework, and that is to read the Lyceum speech. And um, thank you. This is... um I mean, I'm just thinking about uh, Ty Winter, and we were talking about these different firearm uh, bills that are being um, introduced here in the state of Colorado, and they are clearly unconstitutional. So it is at our doorstep. Uh, Ben Martin, can't wait to talk to you next month. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Let's let's hope everybody joins us for that that every month this year. Absolutely, and that is Lincoln. Uh, Life and sword. And uh, our quote for the end of the show is Abraham Lincoln. He said this, great men are ordinary men with extraordinary determination. And today, be grateful, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals. And like Superman, stand for truth, justice and the American way. My friends, you are not alone. God bless you. God bless America. And stay tuned for our number two. It's the Kim Munson Show, analyzing the most important story. Socialization of transportation, education, energy, housing, and water. What it means is is that government controls it through rules and regulations. The latest in politics and world affairs. Under this guise of bipartisanship and nonpartisanship, it's actually tapped down the truth. Today's current opinions and ideas. On an equal field in the battle of ideas, mistruths or misconceptions, and it is getting us into a world of hurt. Is it freedom or is it force? Let's have a conversation. Indeed, let's have a conversation. Welcome to hour number two of the Kim Munson Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You're each treasured, valued, you have purpose. Today, strive for excellence. Take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body. My friends, we were made for this moment. And the team that I get to work with, that's producer Steve, producer Luke, Zach, Patty, Keith, Echo, Charlie, and all the people here at Crawford Broadcasting. We are off to the races on a Monday, producer Steve. But also getting ready to put February February in the rear view mirror. <laughs> I can't believe it. It is hard to believe. Uh, but be like, sure and check out. <laughs> it was just New Year's Day. <laughs> It was just New Year's Day, and it'll be New Year's Day tomorrow as fast as, uh, as fast as time is going. Uh, we are at a very tumultuous, dangerous times in our country. This, uh, interview that we had with Ben Martin, and we're starting this series, Lincoln, Life, and Sword, and the, 
parallels to what we're going through now. It's different, but it's the same. And that that will be rebroadcast today, 1 to 2. And the way it works is we're live 6 to 8 a.m., Monday through Friday. First hour is rebroadcast 1 to 2 in the afternoon. Second hour, 10 to 11 at night. And uh, we try, uh, we've got a lot of moving parts to make it happen. We try to have the show summary with the podcast um, public or uh, posted within, uh, within 24 hours. That's our goal. And uh, you can catch the podcasts on the streaming services like iTunes and Spotify. Since... Uh, since we uh, are talking about Lincoln, I decided to go to, to Lincoln for our quote for today. And he said this, He uh, and he was born in 1809, died in 1865. And he said this, he said, nations do not die from invasion. They die from internal rottenness. And that is why we need to make sure that we're standing on the foundation of our Constitution. And talking with uh, Representative Ty Winter, uh, House District uh, 47 rep, regarding these uh, firearm bills uh, that are being introduced down at the state house they're totally unconstitutional and they will make it more and more difficult for law-abiding everyday citizens to protect themselves against the bad guy and um what's happening down at the state house is it's really beyond belief we are number one in crime in the country uh number one in car thefts uh, number one in bank robberies, and here they are down there trying to figure out how they can disarm everyday citizens. Uh, our text line is 720-605-0647. We're going to be talking about uh, really property rights with Randall O'Toole. I'm so thrilled to be talking with him as our featured guest in uh, in this particular uh, hour. And we get to do this because I have so many great sponsors. And one of those great sponsors is the Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance Team. And as a State Farm agent for 47 years, Roger Mangan has served his customers, provided for his family, and given back to the communities of Centennial, Littleton, Highlands Ranch, Inglewood, and Greenwood Village, as well as Castle Rock. And so we're going to be talking with him about some of these important things he clearly knows his business about insurance. And so we're going to be talking with Roger uh, about this now. And I get to work with a lot of really great people. And one of those folks is Roger Mangan with the State Farm Insurance Team. Roger, it's great to have you in studio. Thank you very much, Kim. And I wanted to talk about claims today. People need to know a little bit about claims. And we're in a we're in a different world, it seems like. There's uh, difficulty in getting parts. It's, it's a different world than what it used to be. That is for sure. What's happening now with the supply chain problem, when you have an accident, let's say I had a specific claim where a client got into an accident on the 29th of October and didn't get his car fixed until December 24th, and at that time it was determined to be a total. He was assuming it would be drivable, so in the interim between the 29th of October and the 24th of December, he had put $1,600 in his car that he really didn't have to because at, at the first blush, State Farm handled the claim. They thought it would, was drivable and repairable, but when it got into the shop two months later, they determined that it was totaled. So it's very, very important for you in the claims process as an insured to be involved in the process. Don't assume that you have an accident, you turn a claim in, and everything is going to be hunky-dory. So by being involved, I'm talking about talking to your agent, saying, how are things going? Is there anything I should be doing? And uh, would you check with the body shop for me? 
you have to be very proactive on the claim. Well, he did not have rental reimbursement on his car, so he actually got his car fixed so he would have a car to drive, only later to be told it was totaled. And a lot of companies are doing what they call virtual inspections on cars, which means pictures are taken, they're sent to the claims adjuster, he looks at it, makes a determination, he or she looks at it, makes a determination, and they may, from that first blush, think the car is repairable. Only the shop knows once they start turning you know, body parts off the car that, hey, this is going to cost $20,000 to fix an $18,000 car, so they're going to total it, of course. So, with all this happening, supply chain, and then goofy things about uh, new regulations on new cars, a lot of people are trying to keep their car. So, you know, and but yet it may have miles on it. It may be older, uh, and it may cost more than maybe the value of the car. What, what's your thoughts on that, Roger? Well, you do have an opportunity once the car is determined to be total, and usually that's an 80% factor. So if you have a $20,000 car and it costs 16000 to repair it, most insurance companies are going to total it. But you have the right to buy that car back from most insurance companies. So if you do buy it back, then the insurance company loses salvage value, and salvage value is, let's say, $5,000 you're going to lose that $5,000 because they would have otherwise made that money on their car. However, the other side of that is it may be cheaper for you to do that, and then you're in control because you'll get a check for the difference between the settlement. Let's say it was $16,000. Now you've got 11000 You go out and buy a car. You go out and repair your own car, and you've got the car that you've had for the last 5, 10 years. I'm driving a car that's 2004. It's almost what, 20 years old, and love the car, take care of the car. If it was totaled, I'd probably get 15000 for it. I couldn't buy a car for fifteen. Right, yeah. right. And the other thing about it is, is you know the miles that were put on it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the work I did to keep that car going. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, just, I, th- I think it's really a, for life. Uh, I continue to hear you say regarding your insurance coverage, you need to be proactive in all of that. And, and each year when you pay your premium to sit down and take a look at that, give your agent a call, uh, being proactive can be can pay big dividends in the future. Absolutely. Very well put point, Kim. I think once people buy insurance, usually we do home, auto, and umbrella liability policy, and we don't hear from them for two, three years, and they make the assumption that we're going to call them, but we really cannot do that. We have, you know, when the day starts in an insurance office, you're very busy. We do have a lady that calls and tries to contact people to make sure their insurance is up to speed, but we can't keep up with the volume. So it's important, indicative upon you to be proactive and call your agent. Getting back to the claim I laid out for you a moment ago, if you have, if you don't have rental reimbursement, and it's only about twenty to twenty-five dollars every six months to get a fifty-dollar day rental up to twelve hundred dollars in that pot of money, it's well worth it because if you don't have it, and if you're at fault in an accident, you don't have it. No one owes you a rental. If you're not at fault, then the company that caused the damage owes you a rental. Mm-hmm. So, but don't rely on the other company. Rely on yourself. Take care of yourself. Yes, personal responsibility. How can people reach you, Roger Mangan? 
303-795-8855 or just email us at Roger rogermangan.com and that's m-a-n-g-a-n.com and 303-795-8855 right you got it i i just i think i have that memorized <laughs> now so thank you, you so much roger thank you kim this is called service you hook me up with auto and renters props to my insurance mentor you made it easy to cover my bed in a box and my extensive collection of clocks <laughs> You know, I find it kind of funny that you also save me money. You've got that good neighbor charm. Give it up for State Farm. Inflation is rocking our boats, especially for individuals on fixed incomes. If you are 62 years or older, mortgage specialist with Polygon Financial Group, Lauren Levy, can help you navigate this inflation squeeze with a reverse mortgage. Additionally, if you are considering buying a new home, refinancing your existing home, or consolidating high interest debt, it's not too late to lock in an interest rate before interest rates increase again. Don't wait. Kim Munson recommends you call Lauren Levy today at 303-880-8881 for a no-cost consultation. That's Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Munson Show but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, kimmunson.com. That's Kim, M-O-N-S-O-N, dot com. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. I'm Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter there. And you can email me at Kim at Kim Munson dot com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. I am so thrilled to have on the line with me Randall O'Toole. He is an expert in land use, urban planning, transportation, you can find him at the Antiplanner. It's ti.org slash Antiplanner. He's dedicated to the sunset of government planning. Randall O'Toole, welcome to the show. Hi, glad to be here. Randall, I, I know you haven't been to Denver for a little while, and you're, you're kind of an expert on what's happening here, but there are multiple uh, four or five-story buildings, apartment buildings, going up all over that we're starting to look like the projects in Chicago or Soviet Russia. Um, what's your thoughts about that? Well, this is an ugly trend that we're seeing in cities all over the country. And it's because most Americans want to live in single-family homes. By most, I mean 80%. It's, uh, it's overwhelmingly. People want to live in single-family homes, and they want those single-family homes to be in single-family neighborhoods. But most urban planners think that most urban Americans should live in apartment buildings. Um, and they have very apartment and apartments and not condos, right? Uh, rent right. instead well, of own. They don't care whether it's co- condos or apartments. They want multifamily housing. They okay. want density. They want what they call compact cities. And, uh, you know, 60 years ago, they said, we need to do this to save farms. Well, it turns out we have so many farms, we don't need to save them. 
then they said we need to save energy. Well, it turns out, of course, we have an abundant amount of energy in the United States. Well, now they say we need to do it for greenhouse gas emissions. Basically, whatever problem you can imagine, the planners think that density is the solution. But the problem is... People want to live in single-family homes, so how do they build density? Well, they uh, get subsidies. They used, there's two primary subsidies that are being used to uh, build these apartment buildings in, in Denver. Now, the first one is called tax increment financing. That's basically where they take the property taxes from these buildings and use them to subsidize the buildings. It's like if you got to build your house and they said, okay, we'll give you back your the next 20 years of your property taxes, we'll give it to you right now to build your house. Um, and that's essentially what they're doing for developers. And the, the city of Denver has more than 50 projects right now that they're subsidizing using this method. Now, the other so, method is Okay, called- so let's ju- just, just think about this. So they're getting like their property taxes back okay so but yet these uh the people that live in these buildings are using the services that property taxes pay so in essence everybody else is paying for this yes am i connecting that dot correctly yes either everybody else is is paying more property taxes to subsidize the services for these people or they're getting a lower quality lower level of services um, there, there was a case in uh, the Denver area where a fire district said, you know, we're running out of money because all of our money is being taken by tax increment financing, so we have to go to the voters and ask them for an increase in the property tax rate so that we can still provide fire services. And the voters approved it, but that essentially meant they were just subsidizing these high-density projects. Now, the okay, other big so, subsidy that's going for these is uh, okay. low-income housing subsidies. Uh, the mm. federal government offers $10 billion a year to developers to build low-income housing. And guess what? The, the most affordable housing you can build is single-family homes. They cost less to build than, uh, than five-story apartments by far. But the planners who allocate this money have decided that the people who get low-income housing subsidies should live in five-story apartment buildings. And nobody else wants to, but if, if they don't have any choice, then uh, we'll build five-story apartment buildings for them. And so whenever you hear the term affordable housing, oh, we're going to have a five-story affordable building, well, that means they're getting low-income housing subsidies. Okay. And so government is – and they're trying to – um, infiltrate single family, uh, home neighborhoods. And I had sent you some information and we're going to have, uh, one of the residents on next week regarding this, um, development out in, uh, Douglas County, Parker. It was, it was rural land. You know, the, the landscape there is single family homes and, uh, the, um, um, Douglas County Planning Commission uh, recommended not to put in this uh, multi-story subsidized housing unit, and the uh, two of the three commissioners overrode that and approved it. And now the residents are are um, in legal action against that. Did you have a chance to take a look at that at all, Randall? Yes, and that's just typical of what's going on. And, uh, you know, we're in a funny position here because the central planners who want to do this are stymied 
by one regulation that's preventing them from doing this everywhere. And so what they've done is they've gone to free market groups uh, like the Mercatus Center and the Cato Institute and said, you're against regulation. Here's a regulation that's preventing us from forcing people to live in housing they don't want to live in. <laughs> uh, aren't you in favor of getting that rid of that regulation? And so these free market groups jump on the bandwagon and say, yes, left and right can work together to get rid of this regulation that's preventing central planners from forcing people to live in housing they don't want to live in. And they support getting rid of the regulation. And of course, that regulation is single-family zoning. And what struck me reading about the people from Parker was they called single-family zoning a property right. And that's really what it is. It's a right to say, I'm not going to develop my property to higher densities as long as my neighbors don't develop their properties to higher densities so we all can enjoy the, the peace and quiet of living in a single-family neighborhood and not have the, the traffic congestion and the infrastructure problems and all the other problems that come with putting in too much density in a neighborhood that was originally designed for low densities. And uh, the single-family zoning is designed to protect that right, and yet the uh, these so-called free market advocates jump on uh, bills that have been passed in several states and are being proposed in several other states to abolish single-family zoning so that so that planners can impose their views of how people should live on more people. But the other thing that, that these um, free market think tanks are missing is that these uh, developments are, cannot stand on their own merits from an economic standpoint. And so they need to take a look at that. If, if they need to have these um, uh, TIF financing, the tax increment financing, uh, yeah, or they need yep. to have the subsidies. And so that's not a free market answer. And I right. am very surprised and that some of these big guys don't understand that. And, and here's one of the amusing things. Between about 1900 and 1990, there were almost no five-story buildings built in the United States anywhere. Why is that? Well, because Americans aren't going to walk up four flights of stairs to get to the top of the story. So they won't be able to sell or rent or lease the top story or even the top two stories of a five-story building unless they put in an elevator. And putting in an elevator is so expensive that it doesn't pay off unless you build at least six stories. So you would see two-story buildings, you'd see three-story buildings, you'd see six-story buildings, but no four- and five-story buildings. And yet this is the kind of housing that, uh, that planners have settled on in their minds as the housing people should live in, and it has to be subsidized. Developers know that people won't live in it if they don't have uh, elevators, and if they do have elevators, they won't get enough money from it to pay for the elevators, so it has to be subsidized. And the, the, I've been writing about this for almost 25 years now, actually almost 30 years now, and I wrote about this for the Cato Institute. I wrote about this for other groups, and they just ignored everything I said when these uh, left-wing central planning people came to them and said, won't you join with us in helping get rid of this regulation? Boy, I, I this seems to me... It, 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 
I'm connecting this dot from, from the World Economic Forum to the, by 2030 that uh, we will own nothing and be happy about it. I mean, their vision is that uh, everyday people live in these, these apartment boxes and uh, also taking away freedom of mobility that they would uh, have to um, ride the train, a bus, a bike, or use their feet to get around. What's your thoughts on that? Well, it's all part of the uh, central planning conspiracy that's been around for a long time. And we don't have to look to the United Nations or the World Economic Forum. These ideas have been in the urban planning literature since, at the very, uh, at the very least, uh, the early 1970s. There was a book called Compact City that came out in 1971 that advocated for this kind of development. And I think it was actually in the planning literature before that. Uh, ironically, there was an architect in, in the 1930s who said everybody should live in high-rises. And so in the 1950s, you saw governments all over the world build high-rise housing for people to live in. And it was pretty much a disaster. So it's the least desirable housing to live in in the cities that have it. And in the United States, many of them ended up being torn down. And in, in the early 1960s, uh, a woman uh, in New York City who was an architecture critic, and she lived in a five. She lived in a neighborhood that had five-story apartment buildings, although her building was only three stories tall. Uh, she wrote a book called *The Death and Life of Great American Cities*, in which she said, "There's nothing wrong with five-story apartment buildings. So why does the city want to tear down my neighborhood and build high-rises?" Okay, that's fine. If she wants to live in five-story apartment buildings, then we don't, and by the way, her building's dated to the 1890s. That's fine. We don't need to tear it down and build high-rises. But urban planners read her book and said, ooh, she was right. We were wrong in trying to force everybody to live in high-rises. So we're going to do what she said and try to force everybody to live in five-story apartment buildings. It's all come out of this one book that was written by a woman who had good intentions but didn't really understand how cities work. And so now we have urban planners all over the world who don't understand how cities work, trying to force people to live in ways they don't want to live. And the key word that you have there is force. And and you, as you mentioned at the beginning of uh, our interview is, uh, the the central planners have used all kinds of different reasons to, again, take away the freedom of mobility, the freedom of uh, housing choices for everyday people. And it is so totally under assault now. Uh, and, Randall, I, I feel that Colorado is at the, the, uh, the tip of the spear on this. Um, your thoughts on that? Well, just watch for bills in the legislature that try to abolish single-family zoning and get people out to testify those bills, because that's going to be the next assault in Colorado. I mean, Denver has an urban growth boundary. Boulder has a green belt. Gold, Golden has a green belt, too. And that's made housing really, really expensive. And the solution is not to abolish single-family zoning. That will not make housing more affordable. Single-family homes is a kind of housing people want to live in. And if you tear down the kind of housing that people want to live in to build your five-story apartment buildings, you're going to make housing less affordable, not more affordable, because you're going to be building a bunch of buildings that people don't want to live in that are costly to build in the first place uh, and tearing down the kind of housing they do want to live in. 
So if you want to make housing, anybody who wants to make housing affordable, who isn't talking about abolishing the urban growth boundary that Dr. Cog has put in, then they're not really sincere about wanting to make housing affordable. They're just parroting the central planning line that Americans should be forced to live in multifamily housing. And the key word there is force. Randall O'Toole, this is absolutely fascinating. The show comes to you because of great sponsors. It's very appropriate to be talking with Karen Levine. She is a REMAX award-winning realtor. There are always opportunities in changing markets, and the metro real estate market is no exception. That's why you need to work with seasoned REMAX Alliance realtor Karen Levine when you buy your home, sell your home, consider opportunities of a new build, or explore investment properties. Rising interest rates are spurring creativity, innovation, and opportunity in the real estate and mortgage markets. Kim Monson highly recommends award-winning REMAX realtor Karen Levine. Call Karen Levine today at 303-877-7516 for answers to all your real estate questions. That's 303-877-7516. Three Points Financial, a comprehensive, fee-only financial and tax-focused company, considers all the pieces of a client's financial life. There are no sales or commissions involved, and all advice is fiduciary, putting the client first. Mary Alpers and Steve Cruz, co-owners of Three Points Financial, take time to work with you regarding decisions that affect your financial present and future. Whatever is happening in our world and with our economy, you have financial goals that matter. And Three Points Financial offers personal, real-time plans for savings, retirement, investments, and taxes, both tax efficiency and preparation. There is no better time than now to focus on your financial situation. If you are interested in learning more, contact ThreePointsFinancial.com to schedule a no-obligation introductory call. All of Kim's sponsors are an inclusive partnership with Kim and are not affiliated with or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the Kim Munson Show and grow your business, contact Kim at her website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. I'm Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. And uh, we published three essays this weekend, uh, one by Brad Beck, one by Alan Thomas, and one that I wrote. It's very hard hitting and it names names on how Colorado has uh, gotten to this uh, very dangerous place that we're at. So be sure and check that out. Our new text line is 720-605-0647. We'll go through texts in the last segment of the show as well as uh, uh, want to hear from you, 303-477-5600. And let's see here. Steve, uh, Randall, producer Steve had a question for you. Producer Steve. This uh, story popped up this morning off of the news, uh, Fox News website, and you, Randall, with your expertise and watching different municipalities around the country uh, manage uh, public transportation. RTD is, you know, <clears throat> what we have here in Denver, and uh, it was late coming to the table as compared to the East Coast cities. And... I, I see something going on here in, the, in this particular story is out of New York, New York City, with the MTA or it's at Metropolitan Transit Authority. They seem to be uh, their revenues are dropping off, especially after COVID and all that. And the governor of New York State 
has become indirectly involved, which I'm not sure she does why she doesn't let the city take care of the issue. But anyway, her answer is to tax the people more with uh, payroll taxes and stuff like that to make up the loss of revenues in ridership. Is this a predictable pattern? I guess that's the question. Well, absolutely. And uh, just for the record, the New York MTA is a state agency. It's not a city agency. So ah. That's why the governor is involved. Okay. Uh, but uh, the MTA today opened up a three-and-a-half-mile tunnel to connect trains from Penn Station to Grand Central Terminal that cost $11.2 billion. That's about $3.2 billion a mile. They're very proud to have opened it up. In the meantime, they have a $26 billion capital shortfall of money they need to maintain their, the rest of their system. Uh, uh, more than a quarter of their rail cars are uh, older than the projected, the expected lifespan of those cars because they haven't been able to afford to replace them. Boston, it's the same thing in Boston. Um, they have uh, uh, 70 different places where the, rail, the trains have to slow down in some places to as slow as walking speeds because they haven't been able to maintain their tracks. In the meantime, they spent $3 billion building a five-mile light rail line. It's the most expensive above-ground light rail line ever built by far. Uh, so what it's come down to in, in Boston and New York and Denver and Seattle and Portland Transit is a way of separating money from taxpayers and putting it in the pockets of contractors to build rail transit. And rail transit is nowhere increased ridership significantly. Uh, and we see a lot of cities build rail transit and their ridership declines. At the most, all that happens is that it increases at the rate of uh, uh population growth, and it's not really increasing because of rail transit. It's just a way of separating taxpayers from their money. And Denver is a classic example. In 2000, uh, Denver had one light rail line, and 4.8% of commuters in the Denver metropolitan area took transit to work, 4.8%. Today, Denver has, what, six light rail lines or six Six rail lines, two of them are commuter rail and four of them are light rail. Uh, and they're talking about finishing another line going up to Longmont. And guess what percentage of commuters took transit to work in 2019 before COVID? It was 4.8%, exactly the same. It didn't move the needle at all. In fact, if you carry it out a couple more digits, it was slightly less. Of course, with COVID, now it's down to around 2.5%. A very tiny percentage of people are taking transit to work. And here's the thing. COVID does not just depress transit ridership temporarily. It's a permanent depression because the people that were riding transit were going to downtown jobs, and those are the people who are working at home now. So we've seen downtown jobs increase by three times, or excuse me, work at homes increase by three times, and uh Commuting by cars declined by anywhere from 12 to 20 percent, but commuting by transit has declined from 50 to 70 percent because working at home has really hit hard the same people who were formerly taking transit to work. 
And so what are we going to do? We're going to increase the subsidies to transit to make up for it because nobody thinks that transit is a bad thing. Everybody's been convinced by the transit agency that transit is wonderful. It helps low-income people. Well, it doesn't help low-income people. In fact, 95% of low-income people don't take transit. And yet they're paying regressive sales taxes mm-hmm. and property taxes to subsidize transit. Then they say, well, it helps reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Well, in Denver and almost every other city that has transit, transit uses more energy and emits more greenhouse gases per passenger mile than driving an SUV, much less driving a car. So transit is actually an environmental disaster. And if we got rid of transit, we'd do more for the environment than by subsidizing it. So it's time to start thinking about reinventing transit, shutting down transit, stop subsidizing transit. But instead, we've got cities all over the country saying, oh, we're going to raise the the regressive taxes supporting transit to make people pay even more to support transit rides they aren't taking. Okay, I'm going to coin a new term. I know producer Steve's going to like this, and I'm going to call this the transit uh, industrial complex. And I've actually had uh, front row seats to that when I was on city council 2012 to 2016. We had had a caller last week, or I guess a text, uh, got a text that said RTD actually stands for reason to drive, Randall. <laughs> well, it, rail transit is not a great system because it only goes to a few places. The advantage of it is that it's easy to see. If you want to go to a place that's on it, it's easy to figure out how to get there, whereas buses, there's so many buses, it's hard to figure them out sometimes. But when RTD was promoting fast tracks in 2004, they said, if we spend $4 billion, and it turned out to be almost, it turned out to be $8 billion, if we spend all this money building this, then 29% of the jobs in the Denver area will be on a fast track line. Well, 29%, what's that? You know, that's less than 30%, and that means more than 70% won't even have the opportunity to take a train. Uh, and, of course, of that 29%, just because their job is on the train line doesn't mean their home is on the train line, so most of them aren't going to take it either. So that's why it hasn't moved the needle at all as far as the number of people taking transit to work. It's just cost taxpayers a lot of money. And uh, if they had put a fraction of that money into improving their bus system, they could have gotten a lot more new riders than they did by building fast tracks. But again, uh, you mentioned that contractors made a lot of money. I, I call them PBIs, uh, politicians, bureaucrats, and interested parties made a lot of money, took a lot of control, central planning. And um, what do you think? I mean, if we got really serious, just think if we actually mothballed all that and put that money that's being um, paid to that back in the pockets of everyday people, just think how that would help them with the affordability of their groceries and their homes. Is it realistic to even think that could happen? You know, uh, I was debating the uh, general manager of RTD uh, in 2004, and I said, look, just for the less than the cost of one light rail line that you're proposing, we could give everybody in the area who doesn't have a car and who has a job and doesn't have a car, we could give them a new car. 
so they could drive to work, and then they'd be able to access all kinds of economic opportunities that they can't access on RTD because it's so slow. And the data show that uh, driving a car, you can reach 60 times as many jobs in a 30-minute drive as you can on RTD. Uh, you can reach twice as many jobs in a 10-minute drive than a 60-minute transit trip. So, uh, and w what was his answer? We can't let poor people have cars. It would cause too much congestion. Uh. What we have here is we're going to consign some people to third-class transportation and third-class housing because we don't care about them. We don't want to let them have single-family homes. We don't want to let them have cars. Uh, we want to force them to take transit and live in apartments. Okay, Randall, um, I'm going to switch gears here, and that is going back over to um, subsidized housing. They call it affordable housing. It's subsidized housing. And I had uh, mentioned to you this uh, House Bill 231190, which I read it this weekend, or I read the summaries on it, and it absolutely... It's it's terrifying, I think, of the control here. Did you get a chance to look at that? I know I sent a bunch of information over to you. Uh, uh, no, did... I missed that. Okay. Sorry. So, <laughs> not a problem. I'm going to just uh, read this bill summary, okay? And first of all, the title is not the same as what it says in the bill summary. It says, Concerning a right of first refusal to purchase qualifying multifamily residential property by a local government. But going down to the bill summary, it says this, the bill creates a right of first refusal of a local government to match an acceptable offer for the sale of a residential or mixed-use multifamily property. The right to the purchase of the property by the local government is subject to the local government's commitment to use the property as long-term affordable housing. And it says the local government may assign its right of first refusal to the state, blah, 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 or any other political subdivisions or any housing authority. This is terrifying to me, but you, you, you match this up with this initiative that passed by the voters narrowly and, um, interested parties put a whole bunch of money behind it. And then we actually had, uh, a Republican Dick Wadhams that was paid to get out there on the stump to try to get people to vote for it as well. And that was proposition one, two, three, where, uh, it, it puts revenues over in this new fund. Uh, but one of the things there is it says that any, municipality that takes money from this uh, ha um, has to agree that they will increase their uh, subsidized housing, affordable housing, 3% each year. And the other thing that just is so concerning, because somebody said, oh, oh nobody will come in and, and pay $600,000 for a house. Uh, well, there's the tax money there, but then this Prop 123 says that the land banking program in their equity programs can accept gifts, grants, or donations from any public or private sources. So you could see some of these big central planner, big money guys coming in and putting money into this. I find this terrifying. Um, I know you're just getting hit with this. What's your thoughts? Well, it's, it's all part of the package, and, you know... Uh, 
before we started this call, I just happened to open up a news story in, here in Oregon uh, where a state senator from a small coastal town has proudly introduced a bill to subsidize multifamily housing so that his town of Lincoln City, Oregon, can have more affordable housing, never mind the fact that it's only unaffordable because it has an urban growth boundary. And so under his bill, we'd be tearing down single-family homes and building apartments and uh, calling it affordable. Now, one of the things about accepting affordable housing money, if you're a developer, is you have to keep those units affordable if you're renting them for 30 years. It has to be 30 years before you're allowed to start renting them at market rates. Uh, now, it turns out you don't have to rent them all at, at affordable rates. Uh, the average in the building has to go for 65% of the amount that would be paid by somebody at of the median income of your city. So if the median income of your city is $90,000, or let's say $100,000, then it would have to be affordable to somebody who earns $65,000 a year, 65% of the median income. That's actually quite a bit of money. So what they usually do is they, they require that like two or four units be rented for 30% of the median income, and that's poverty level, and then a lot more units for 65%, and then a bunch of units for close to 100%. So basically, they're going to rent a lot of them at market rates, and a few of them at rates for people who are truly uh, needy, and basically, it's a, a subsidy to middle-class people, and truly low-income people get hardly any of this housing. Now, the, the, as I say, they're obligated to rent it for these rates for 30 years, and at the end of the 30 years, they just sell and uh, 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 say, okay, now it can all go for market rates, and they evict the people who are paying the low-income rates. So that's where your uh, first right of refusal comes in. The uh, local government might then come in and say, okay, we're going to use more tax dollars to buy this property so we continue, can continue renting a few of these units uh, to truly low-income people. So it's a, an artifact of the way the low-income housing subsidies work. Right. So it, it, this is now, I would call this the affordable housing industrial complex. Randall O'Toole, uh, people can find you at, I got it right here, it is TI dot org slash the anti-planner and uh no, you're dedic- anti-planner no duh <laughs> okay okay one more time what is your website give that to me dot org slash anti-planner but just google the word anti-planner i'm the first thing on the list right well, dedic- duck, duck, go the anti-planner you don't want google <laughs> to know what you're google <laughs> true that randall o'toole thank you so much i've learned so much and i greatly appreciate it glad to be here i look forward to our next meeting Sounds great. And as you can see, being intellectually curious is so important. And that's why what uh, Dr. James Linesweiler is doing with IPAC-EDU is uh, something that is just perfect for those that are intellectually curious. What do Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, and Nikola Tesla have in common? None of these men graduated from college, but each of them had enormous intellectual curiosity. Scientist Dr. James Lyons-Weiler is creating a new kind of educational model for the busy, intellectually curious, IPAC-EDU. Classes are affordable and interactive 
and experts in each of their fields with courses in biology, philosophy, analytics, health and wellness, political science, chemistry, regenerative science, and psychology. There is a spring 2023 course for you. Dash over to ipacedu.org, ipac-edu.org for more information and to register. That's ipac-edu.org. Inflation is rocking our boats, especially for individuals on fixed incomes. If you are 62 years or older, mortgage specialist with Polygon Financial Group, Lauren Levy, can help you navigate this inflation squeeze with a reverse mortgage. Additionally, if you are considering buying a new home, refinancing your existing home, or consolidating high interest debt, it's not too late to lock in an interest rate before interest rates increase again. Don't wait. Kim Munson recommends you call Lauren Levy today at 303-880-8881 for a no-cost consultation. That's Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. Every family needs a healthcare team that has your child's best interest as the priority, and Roots Medical is proud to offer exactly that. At Roots Medical, we strive to empower and educate both parent and child about the importance of gut health, how to implement healthy changes in the home, and of course, all of the benefits that come with a fully optimized immune system. Same day and sickness appointments are available and easy to schedule. For more information, visit rootsmedical.net. That's R O O T S medical.net. Roots Medical, getting to the root of your healthcare concerns. Finding a firearm or training course can be intimidating for anyone, especially when you're new at it. Franktown has everything you need to get started or to improve with a firearm. Franktown is a family-friendly gun store and are invested in the success of their customers, no matter what your age, gender, or experience level is. Franktown sells firearms and ammo at or below MSRP, has an indoor range on site, and offers tactical and safety training. Franktown Firearms is always a safe and easygoing environment environment for all customers. Come to Franktown for a comfortable, no-pressure experience when shopping or learning about your firearm with approachable experts dedicated to your development as the owner of a firearm. Franktown Firearms has everything you need to get started and or to improve on any background experience. Visit klzradio.com slash franktown to schedule your firearms training today or find more information at franktownfirearms.com. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. And you can email me at Kim at Kim Munson.com as well. And thank you to all of you who support us. We are an independent voice searching for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And I just wanted to mention a great nonprofit that I love. That is the USMC Memorial Foundation. Uh, Paula Starles is the president of the USMC Memorial Foundation, and she and her team are raising the money to do the remodel of the Marine Memorial out at Six and Colfax. You can help them by going to usmcmemorialfoundation.org. It is a great way to honor uh, those that have given their lives or been willing to give their lives so that we can live in freedom. Freedom is... um is is on the uh, uh, in the frying pan right now, but that is uh, why we were made for this moment. Thrilled to have on the line with me one of our listeners. That's Bill in North Glen. What's on your radar? 
Uh, yeah, you used to, I think you said, sit on uh, city council there. I just wanted to uh, respond to this tax increment financing. It is absolutely being abused by these cities. Uh, just up in the North area, as example, American Furniture Warehouse there at 84th and I-25, they used tax increment financing. The guy did not have to pay a property tax, I believe it was for eight or ten years. Uh, the Lark Ridge Shopping Center at 144th and I-25, again, tax increment financing. They're not paying property tax. And if we're going to maintain these lavish pensions to the school districts, uh, where's the money going to come from outside of more mill levy increases? And they stack mill levy increase on top of mill levy increase on top of mill levy increase. And it's like they just tell you, oh, it's just a cup of coffee. By this right. time, I mean, we could have a whole semi-truck full of coffee. I mean, it's insanity. Um, Bill, and that brings up something so important because uh, last year, Douglas County uh, was asking for a mill levy in, uh, override. Uh, that's what it, the MLO and mill levy override. And they're going to be back again. And um, I was one of the few voices out there to say, wait a minute. Uh, when the World Economic Forum says that by 2030 we will own nothing and be happy about it, I'm like, how can they do it? And it could be it's inflation and it's higher and higher taxes. And um, with the increase in the assessed valuation, our property taxes are going up significantly already. In fact, a, a listener reached out, um, plant, it looks like it's going to be a 26.5% increase. He said, Kim, is this true? Can this happen without Tabor? And it can because of the higher assessments. And so um, we need to start to say no to all of these increases for everyday people on our taxes. And to your point, I agree, Bill, this tax increment financing, is being totally, totally abused. Uh, your final thought? Well, I mean, go back over here to transportation like that guy was talking about. They've got this idiotic light rail going up here to Longmont. Nobody's riding the light rail. Nobody's riding the buses. They might get stabbed, and frankly, everybody thinks they're germ tubes now because of the, the COVID thing. Everybody's freaked out with this COVID. So I think we need a moratorium on any expansion of any light rail and reevaluate any bus lines and, frankly, bring a private contractor in and, and let them uh, determine some routes. And if it's profitable for them, they can provide bus service. Let's not pay the RTD again with these lavish pensions again to uh, to perform a service that nobody's riding. The trains are going uh, up and down. Nobody's riding them. Uh, excellent point, Bill, in North Glen. Excellent point. Uh, listener just texted and said, the Gaylord Hotel pays no property tax. Uh, and uh, this is just not fair uh, to, to bring in these um, these big developments. I'm sorry, Steve, who's next? Oh, Ginny. Ginny, what's on your radar? Um, uh, this has been on my radar for a long time, and I've even tried to warn the uh, city of Wellington because the uh, cockroaches of uh, Fort Collins are trying to infiltrate that. And what they need to do is get rid of this Patty Garcia, who's the town administrator, and also the Cody Bird, who is the town planner. So they all just implement this Agenda 2030 and uh, when they send all of these town administrators to the Colorado Municipal League, they learn how to bring all this poison back into the um, community. And then you have uh, people who run under the name of R, 
who vote like D, and I think there's a couple to three of them on the trustees of Wellington that do this, do that. So they're, they're fox in sheep's clothing. Well, and to that point, and again, I was on city council 2012 to 2016 and started to connect the dots on what is was happening. And a lot of this, these planners and these administrators come out of the public administration uh, curriculum in our universities, which basically the central planning that Randall O'Toole was talking about is what is being pushed. And so we need to make sure that the, the our representatives are representing us. And the other thing is, is uh, Jenny, is that uh, these um, public administrators are p- typically paid very lavish salaries and of course then they get public pensions as well so we can see see how this um this is all connected we are out of time my friends um we've got such a jam-packed week planned for you you can't even believe it if you want to know what's going to be occurring on the show be sure and sign be signed up for our weekly email newsletter Uh, but we're going to go back to abraham lincoln we are in tumultuous times we're in dangerous times And we're in this battle of ideas. But Abraham Lincoln said this. He said, great men are ordinary men with extraordinary determination. And I know there are so many of you out there. And my friends, we were made for this moment. So my friends today, be grateful. Read great books. Think good thoughts. Listen to beautiful music. Communicate and listen well. Live honestly and authentically. Strive for high ideals. And like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. My friends, you are not alone. God bless you. And God bless America. Like a new moon rising fierce Through the rain and lightning Wandering out into this great unknown And I don't want no one to cry But tell them